Well, good morning. John chapter 18 can be returning to. Uh, and as, as you're turning there, I want to sh- just make mention of something that, that I'm excited about as of about 10 minutes ago, 15 minutes ago. Um, I think that after the summer is over, EF Sings will start back up on a rotation. The last time we did EF Sings, evening we get together and we practice singing, we worked on that first song that we sang this morning, Immortal, uh, Invisible. Yeah, and I'm happy to report, I think that I nailed the bass line all the way through this morning because of several months ago, James leading us through that and having us practice it. If you've ever wanted to learn how to sing better in a group, it actually works, and it's a lot of fun. So I'm just going to say that. I've been excited ever since we sang that this morning, and I think I did it. Uh, those will start back up at some point. John 18. Um, let's focus here. I hope that's why I wasn't distracted. Uh, we, we are continuing here to look at the events of this evening before us. Uh, what takes place between the arrest of our Lord and his crucifixion? And we'll continue to do the same thing next week as well. Next week we'll be looking at Pontius Pilate and the Romans and uh, what we see there. This week we're going to look at what John tells us about the chief priests of the Jews. And the word that I'm going to be using to describe what we see here is the word hypocrisy. There will be a number of ways in which these religious leaders are acting and speaking in multiple contexts here that we'll read, with masks on. They know certain things, and they believe certain things, but they're going to act like they know or believe other things. And our task this morning, part of it is simply to recognize those things for what they really are, uh, given the details that John is providing for us. But in addition to that, and maybe in particular, our task is to understand the way that these hypocrisies are driven by something called pragmatism. You've heard that word. Pragmatism is really a a philosophy. It's an ethical outlook on life that basically gauges right and wrong by whether an action achieves a particular purpose that I think is important. Uh, The ends justify the means. It's this way of thinking and making decisions. This morning really gives us a prime opportunity to see that way of thinking on display and to evaluate it. And my hope is that we can see even more clearly this morning by what John shows us why the morality of pragmatism is unfit for one who bears the name of Christ. So that's one thing that we'll do is we'll look at these displays. There will be three of them, three displays of hypocrisy by the Jews uh, in order to understand what's driving them here. When we finish with that, then we'll end our time by stepping back and drawing some conclusions based upon what we have seen. So this is where we're going. And for our reading, I'll ask you to be ready to follow me. I'd like us to read the rest of chapter 18 here, but I'm going to pass over the two sections about Peter that we studied last week. So we'll jump just a bit. We'll start at verse 12 of John 18, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. John 18, starting at verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. 
First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. I'll go down to verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now down to verse 28. Notice that they entirely, John entirely skips over the trial with Caiaphas. Verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate enters, entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Even before we get to the actual events of the evening here, the first act of hypocrisy, already John gives us something of a hint of what we're going to see. He gives it to us right off the bat at verse 14. And Jesus is brought then to Annas, who is the father-in-law of the high priest Caiaphas. And it is interesting to, to notice here in 14, even though we're not, we're not going to be told a single thing about Jesus' interrogation with Caiaphas, and that's where the actual trial will happen. Even though John omits that entirely, he still goes ahead and reminds us 
of something about Caiaphas here. Verse 14, he reminds us, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So just as he's beginning to tell us what he is going to tell us, he feels it helpful to us to remind us of this event. This is what we saw back in John chapter 11. At that moment, the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, they were lamenting. They were feeling very hopeless because of the crowds coming to Jesus and the miracles he was performing. And their lament was that the Romans are going to come. And they said, take away our place and take away the nation. And it was in verse 49 of that chapter that Caiaphas then stood and said to them, you remember these words, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. What he was telling them was that their problem here in this moment was that they're fixating on the individual and on how they ought to behave and the, the constraints that are upon them as to how they're going to handle this situation. He says sometimes you have to focus on the nation as a whole over the individual. Sometimes you have to accept a lesser evil over a greater one. And in this case, the lesser evil that he is talking about is that one man should just die. Better that one man die than that the whole nation perish. This is what he says there in verse 50. And they're persuaded by this. And as a result, from that moment, the Sanhedrin, the collective body representing the Jewish nation's spirituality, begins plotting premeditated murder. That's back in chapter 11. John starts off our events of this morning by reminding us of that statement that Caiaphas made. And really, it's preparatory for us as we're about to see Jesus enter into a legal process here with them. What degree of justice are we supposed to come into this expecting? As they go through any degree of formality, any degree of observance, either religiously or just legally, how seriously should we be preparing ourselves to take this? We come into these legal proceedings, in other words, with very low expectations. And he helps us to, to be there at the start by reminding us of how they've been operating now for some time. Uh, one more detail to notice before we start to see the events themselves here. Notice that, as we've said, the Jews bring Jesus first to Annas, not to Caiaphas. This is the residence of Annas that they bring Jesus Two, uh, we are a little bit unclear about the details of how their living arrangements were, uh, but many think that Annas and Caiaphas likely lived within the same kind of family compound. So if that's true, then when they bring Jesus from Annas to Caiaphas, it might have been little more than just walking across the open courtyard to the building beside. Uh, but this is Annas's home here. Annas has apparently arranged for this to happen. He wants to see Jesus first before the trial. Uh, and that's what we're going to hear. This is an interrogation. It's not the, actual, uh, not the actual court case being presented. Annas held tremendous authority and influence in this season, even though he is not the high priest right now. At, the, at, at this point, the office of high priest in Israel has kind of become a family dynasty kind of thing. It, it made me think of... A, of a mob family or something as I was thinking about their connivings and some of the things we're going to see. Uh, and politics is very much mixed up with all of this. 
the appointment to high priest was supposed to be a lifetime appointment. But the problem is that the Romans have been involved in this. The Roman governor Quirinius had removed Annas as high priest around the year 14 or 15 AD. So not that long ago in this time. Um, Annas is such that eventually six of his own family members and descendants will serve stents as high priest. So uh, even though he has been removed, you, you can imagine the, the influence that this man possesses. And because the Jews took them as lifetime appointments, he is still regarded very highly. He is very influential. It seems almost like the way we do with our presidents. When, when a president is no longer serving, we still often refer to him as president. Uh, Annas here in verse 22 is called the high priest, even though he's technically not the high priest right then. But this gives you a sense of, uh, of the place he continues to occupy in this conversation. And so for that reason, then, the, the first display of hypocrisy we see, we see from Annas with him directly. And it's his pretense that we find here of this being a legitimate legal inquiry. He's treating this as if something very legitimate is going on in his questioning of Jesus. Verse 19, the high priest, this is Annas, then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Now, as I've said, we do have to remember that this is an interrogation. This isn't the trial itself which is going to be presided over by Caiaphas. But that doesn't mean that they didn't have regulations in their legal process, even with these interrogations. It doesn't mean that they didn't have regulations about how to treat an accused criminal. They actually took that very seriously, like we do today. They were quite protective of the rights of accused individuals before they had been declared guilty. Let's just name off a few requirements of theirs that we know about still today, and compare them to the scene that we see uh, this evening. Uh, here's a requirement. The trials couldn't be held at night. They needed to be held during the day. Now, again, this is not a trial, but the meeting before Caiaphas in just a moment will be, and that's still in the middle of the night, isn't it? Their trials were to take place during the day for obvious reasons, the same reasons that you and I would very much appreciate Today, if we were on trial, if you woke up and discovered that your brother-in-law, while you slept, had been arrested, tried, and convicted, you'd have reasonable questions as to why they felt the need to do it when nobody was awake to be there. That would be a concerning thing if, you're, if you care about justice, and they cared about that as well. Uh, here's another. They had laws against forced self-incrimination. So testimony in these legal situations was not supposed to come from the accused. It was supposed to come from witnesses. You had the task of finding witnesses and asking them rather than putting the accused on, uh, on uh, trial, on the stand themselves. And they took false witnesses very seriously. I think the Ten Commandments might have something to say about bearing false witness. And we know from the other gospel accounts that a problem they encountered in the midst of all of this was that the witnesses that they did produce kept contradicting each other, and yet somehow that did not impede the trial. It did not affect the verdict, uh, finally. And yet here, even before the trial, as this interrogation is happening, we have Annas pressing Jesus himself 
for testimony. And of course, floating over all of this is the fact that not only are the prosecutors in this case the very same people who are going to judge the outcome of the case, but they also happen to be the same people who had committed, as we've seen a few chapters ago, to putting Jesus to death. All of this, and yet Annas is behaving as if he's conducting a legitimate legal inquiry. Removed, objective, trying to get to the bottom of something that has some mystery to it still. Jesus responds to Annas in verses 20 to 23. His reply in, in 20 and 21 serves to poke a hole in the notion that there is something hidden to be discovered. He says in verse 20, Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. And he doesn't mean by that that he's never said anything privately to his disciples. What he means is that he has been in his teaching utterly transparent and honest. He is one who has worn no masks. He's not had a hidden agenda. Annas wants to behave as if this is an investigation into some kind of a scandal. And he asks about the disciples of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus. Maybe there are violent or political motives being fed to a group of disciples privately that he ought to be aware of. Jesus says, all of my teaching has been done out there where everyone could see. You have whole crowds you can go to and just ask them. He says, you, they know what I said. And of course, even Jesus push for him to go and ask those who heard him also serves to point out the inappropriateness of Annas' procedure here. It, does, it reminds that Annas is supposed to be taking testimony from witnesses, not from the accused. So then, this particular hypocrisy is, is blatant to see. It's even put further on display by what comes next in verse 22, in response to Jesus' words. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? It's like Jesus is patiently giving them a lesson about how they're supposed to be doing this. We stand by and we watch this and we ask, are we, uh, how seriously should we be taking this? And it's as if Jesus is asking that. Are we still pretending that this is a legitimate legal process we're in here? If it is, let me give you some pointers. Is an objection supposed to be met by a slap in the face or by a response that comes from evidence? So with this interaction with Annas, we see the first display of hypocrisy from the Jewish leadership. Annas knows exactly what they've been intending to do. He knows exactly what the outcome is going to be. And yet here he is behaving as if he is trying to engage in a legitimate legal inquiry. It's hypocrisy. The second show of this that we see comes in verse 28. We see from the Jews a pretended concern for purity. Verse 28, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. 
It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. This one is maybe even easier to see, I think, isn't it? They don't want to defile themselves. They're concerned with religious defilement. They want to eat the Passover. Jewish law held that entering the dwelling place of a Gentile made you ceremonially unclean. And they had two different, two different types of ceremonial uncleanness. Some of them would take seven days to remove. Some of them would take just one day to remove. This seems like probably one of the latter, uh, so that by that night they could have undergone the purifications. But that would have made them miss out on a day of these festivities and these meals. This is an important social event in Jerusalem, and they didn't want to miss out on what's happening that day. And it tells us that that was their desire. So it's not hard to see. What is the extent of their concern here? Is there on display a desire for actual purity in the eyes of God? Or is it nothing more than the desire not to be excluded from an important social event? These are men who are self-consciously in the midst of an act of premeditated murder. It was expedient, remember? To just go ahead and kill one man instead of risking the entire nation. And yet here with Pilate, they require what we'll see next week is a very inconvenient setup for Pilate so that they don't have to come inside, so that they not become ceremonially impure and have to then go through what that requires. This is hypocrisy. And for them, it's, it's an eternally tragic hypocrisy because of what they're doing. That They are betraying and murdering the one who is the true Passover himself. The man that the Jews had been waiting for for 2,000 years to come. He's come. And they're betraying him to his death in order to get to eat at the ceremonial Passover meal that evening. Talk about selling your birthright for a bowl of stew. And this display that we see from them of pretending to be concerned about purity, it's on its face, the second act of of hypocrisy that we see from them in these events. There's a third act as well. It too comes not from their interaction with Jesus, but from their interaction with Pilate. What we find is that the Jews are very clearly acting with hypocrisy even towards the Romans themselves in the way that they are presenting Jesus to them. And they're doing this for very pragmatic reasons. They need the Romans to crucify Jesus. We we dealt in the church newsletter this last week with the question, we won't go into it much here, as to whether the Jews legally could have simply stoned Jesus to death for blasphemy or whether they did not have that right and they had to, if he was going to be put to death, it had to be done only by the Romans and by crucifixion. But the point is, either way, it's the same. Either they were unwilling to have him stoned for blasphemy because they knew the popular response would be against them, or they were legally unable to do so. And either way, this is what they have to do instead. What they do is they take Jesus and they present him to Pilate in the terms that they expect Pilate to understand and appreciate. 
That is, they present Jesus' offense to Pilate in political terms. And I'm calling this hypocrisy because it is clearly a show on their part. Their problem with Jesus has not been a concern for Roman law, Jesus' violations of Roman policy. Their problem has been his claims concerning who he is. Theirs has been a religious objection to him, as they themselves make clear in chapter 19. But I wanted to share something with you. Listen to how D.A. Carson explains this interaction very well between Pilate and the Jewish leaders. Listen to what he wrote. Pilate's question, what charges are you bringing against this man, formally opened the judicial proceedings. The fact, I wonder if you've noticed this, the fact that Roman troops were used at the arrest proves that the Jewish authorities had already communicated something of this case to Pilate in advance. And the sparring between these two that follows in the wake of Pilate's question confirms the point. They had expected Pilate to confirm their judgment and order the death sentence by crucifixion. Instead, he orders a fresh hearing in his presence. Can you tell from their reaction that they're surprised that he, he proceeds the way he does? Carson continues, this explains their reply, for otherwise their words appear impossibly insolent. The fact that Pilate had sufficiently agreed with their legal briefs to sanction sending a detachment of troops had doubtless encouraged them to think that he would ratify the proceedings of the Sanhedrin and then get on to other business. To find him opening up what was in fact a new trial made them sullen. You can hear it, I think, in verse 30. If he were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. They're hoping that will be good enough. The course of the subsequent interrogation shows that whether at this point or in earlier legal briefs, the Jews had cast their case in political categories that Pilate could understand, even though the categories that upset them were theological. End quote. It is clear that their case to Pilate focused on the notion of political subversion against Rome. When Pilate goes back inside and begins to interrogate Jesus, you notice what his first question is. It's very to the point. Are you the king of the Jews? Where did he get that from? This is the notion that he has been presented with. Jesus is holding himself up as, a, as an opposing, competing king. Authority. But the Jews, their offense has always had to do with Jesus' claim to not political authority in and of itself, but religious authority that surpassed their own. They've been scandalized at his statements putting him in this proximity to the Father. It's on blasphemy charges in chapter 10, you remember, that they picked up stones to stone him. And with Pilate, it's only when, in chapter 19, it gets to a dangerous point for the Jews, where it seems possible that Pilate might not cooperate with them that they actually blurt out the true reason for their hatred of Jesus. Look over at 19, verse 7. And we'll look at this more next week as well. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. Their accusations of political insurrection are purely made for pragmatic reasons. They are efforts to manipulate Pilate into doing what they need him to do. You notice it's how they rest their case in chapter 19, verse 12. 
From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And of course, the quite infamous statement further down in verse 15. You see the end of that verse. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Do you think that the chief priests are going around elsewhere saying to others and to each other, we have no king but Caesar? They're saying whatever they think they need to say to finish the job, to get Pilate to do what they, what they want him to do. And they know that pretending to honor Roman law in this way is going to do the job. This is hypocrisy. The Jews despise the Romans. Guys, <laughs> even entering Pilate's headquarters is enough to render them unclean. There's a major debate of their time around whether paying taxes to Rome should even be legal or not. And you remember the timeline, we're only a few decades away from the Jews officially going to war with Rome. It goes very poorly for them, but they do that not that long from now. But here, they're doing their good duty. They are turning an insurrectionist in to the Roman authorities. You remember that early on when they had started building a case against Jesus, we don't hear about it in John, but Matthew 22 has this group sending people to Jesus to ask him to weigh in on the debate about paying Roman taxes. And it tells us there what they were doing is they were trying to trap Jesus in his words. And of course he confounds them. But they've been building this particular case of Roman insurrection to turn into Pilate the entire time. Now again, as we've said, we need to notice the source of their motivation here. This pretense on their part, we have no king but Caesar. This is pure pragmatism on display. And it's a bit, maybe ironic isn't the right word, but it fits well with what we saw last week with Peter. Peter just got through that doorway into the courtyard with a pragmatic two-word comment, right? Only to wind up saying things inside that he never thought he would say. Right next to that, here there is such commitment to pragmatism over faithfulness that the, the religious leaders, the chief priests of the people of Yahweh are shouting out loud the words, we have no king but Caesar. This is where it leads us. These are the three demonstrations that we see in this text of hypocrisy from the Jewish leaders. But at this point, I would have us then step back and look at them and think about the kinds of warnings that we can draw from this, the kinds of lessons that we're supposed to be seeing here. There are so many things that we're seeing as we're watching this display that can be very clarifying for us. And because of that, they're, they're valuable for us to see. And I would suggest some of those conclusions that we ought to be noticing here. There are three of them that I would have us consider. The first thing I think we ought to notice uh, that is clearly a significant goal for John that we notice, it's maybe the simplest one. We need to notice very carefully how well it has been demonstrated, the utter innocence in all things of Christ in these events. 
Jesus stands here on trial as a thoroughly innocent man. No Old Testament law has been broken. No political insurrection has been planned. He is innocent of all charges. And in fact, all of the descriptions that we see in places like Isaiah 53 are proven true by the way Jesus goes through this so-called legal process. It's right what Isaiah wrote. It, It is oppression and affliction that Jesus is receiving that night. It's not justice. It's oppression. It is sinful judgment at work. It is true that he had done no violence. He had uttered no deceit. And we'll bring this back up later, but I think we need to understand that in saying those things, what's being told to us is not just that Jesus uttered no deceit in the course of his life, which is, of course, true, but that in particular, as he was going through this unjust suffering, he was choosing to respond to it in just these ways. He was suffering unjustly while refusing to respond with any deceit himself, while refusing to do any violence himself. It's true the way that Isaiah gives it to us. Jesus is a lamb being led to the slaughter here, but specifically a lamb that is pure and spotless, having no blemish at all. It's a good reminder for us this morning that that death, the death of a pure lamb, a spotless lamb, was the very death that our Father arranged for us. On our behalf. This is the death that God has worked to bring about for us. And He has done it this way because it's only that death that could have paid for our sins. In the Old Testament, in terms of the the ways that the sacrificial system prepared us to understand these things, you know the spotted lamb was not qualified to be a sin sacrifice. And what's the reality behind that picture? A sinner has his own sins to pay for. Our hope, in fact, our only hope, is that God would provide for us a sacrifice that this world cannot produce. Our only hope is that God might provide a perfect substitute to stand in our place. Hebrews 7.26 says this, For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. This same John will write in 1 John 3, 5, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Peter speaks of this too. I love everything about the statement that Peter makes in 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 17. The real point of this is going to come in verses 19 and 20, but I I want to read this whole thing because it's just so good. This is what Peter says to us. If you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. It's referring to just the rest of our lives here as God's children. We are not home. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. You trust God for your salvation this morning? How is that? How are you a believer in God? Through him you are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is what the scriptures hold out to us about the one who is going through this unjust trial process. Jesus was innocent. And in a sense, it's, it makes us the most horrific night the world has ever seen. The greatest display of injustice and horror. And yet, as those of us who are covered in his blood... It is the thing that causes us to cry out with thankfulness because therein lay the very means of our pardon. We whose faith and hope are in Christ are forever reconciled to the justice of God because the one who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the great exchange that Christ has won for us. And it is only possible if he hangs there, pure and spotless, so that we might be then clothed in his perfections. Again, it's simple here in terms of what we're seeing, but it's not something we should fail to notice. We are seeing proven the complete innocence of our Lord as these things are going on. Another thing that we see here that we can draw conclusions from these events of this night, this is where we get to find out, in maybe the most direct way, what it looks like to obey the Bible's command to imitate our Lord in suffering. We have the injustice of this night. We certainly have the suffering of, of the crucifixion itself. But he is being he is being mistreated here. His suffering has begun, and so we're now getting to see how he walked through it. 1 Peter chapter 2 points us to his picture. It points us to Christ as the example that we're supposed to follow when we suffer unjustly. We read this, 1 Peter 2, 20, starting at verse 21. Peter writes, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Let me read that last part again. What did Jesus do instead of those things? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It's even clearer there in 1 Peter than it is in Isaiah 53. What Peter is obviously telling us here is not just what is true of Jesus in his whole life. He's holding out to us the example of a suffering Christ. And he's saying this is how Christ, when he was suffering unjustly, this is what he did. He did not sin in response to this unjust suffering. He did not utter deceit. He did not try to, he did not say, this is unjust. It, it should end, and therefore any means I can take to arrange that end, I'm going to take it because this is unjust. That would be pragmatism. 
It's good for a wrong thing to be undone, so let me find a way. No, no, he did not utter deceit. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Even though it was unjust suffering, he did not threaten. What did he do instead? He chose to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. We are watching our Lord walk that out before us here in the face of this injustice. And notice what we're hearing from Peter. What we're seeing in Christ's example is the example of honor. We're seeing an honorable response to the circumstances of unjust treatment and suffering. Honor is what characterizes it. It's not an example, we've seen it this morning, it's not an example of weakness or cowardice. Uh, It's not an example of deciding to sell out truth and justice in order to avoid conflict. Jesus does none of those things. He stands in the midst of this legal farce. And one of the things we see him do is he refuses to play along with it in a way that would legitimize what is unjust. When Annas conducts this legal interrogation inappropriately, Jesus calls him out on it. When the official strikes him and, and behaves unjustly, Jesus calls him out on it. We see examples in those things. And yet, as he's doing that, how does he conduct himself? He entrusts himself to his Father, who judges justly. And doing that didn't preclude him from speaking out and exposing the wicked injustice of the situation. My friends, that's instructive for us. What I'm saying is, we're watching the example that we're told to imitate. So as Christ behaves in these ways, we're learning what we may and may not do. We we need an example. Those moments are very confusing. Those moments that we will find ourselves in, and some of us are already now, for the name of Christ, finding ourselves in these unjust situations. What do we find in the example that we've been given? We must obey God rather than men. The law of God certainly supersedes any man-made law that does not stem from God's law. But also we see that when moments of injustice come, following after Christ's example doesn't prevent us from speaking out for truth and justice. In fact, he's demonstrating here that we must be determined in our life not to walk a path of lies, not to represent lies. We must stand for truth. And we see it in Christ here. However, following his example does require us in all of those things to conduct ourselves in a way that honors the one that calls himself our king. The one who we call our king as well. And that's one thing that we see here. We see a clear picture that is demonstrating for us how we may behave when suffering unjustly. It's worth our attention here. Third and finally, and this is related to the the second, but it's something to see separately. We, we sort of get our faces rubbed in some ugliness here as we see hypocrisy on display in all of its ugliness. And what I mean is we might be getting an experience similar here to what King David got when Nathan came with his little lamb story. Do you remember that event? David has committed heinous sin and successfully hidden it away. And he's conducting his kingly business as if this is not the case. And Nathan comes and tells him a story of, and here's the key, 
a story of somebody else doing the same root thing that David has done. And David hears it and says, the man who has done this deserves to die. And Nathan says, you are the man. (laughs) Sometimes seeing the very things that we engage in, but seeing them in in the face of somebody else is the most powerful way to have our hearts exposed to us. Because we're very good at rationalizing and putting bows on our own sin. But when we see it somewhere else, we can see it with the ugliness that it really possesses. And we see things here, don't we? About how defiling this sin is, the deceit of hypocrisy is. We see its motivations being those of, uh, that reflect a lack of trust in the providence of God. We see these things to be driven by pra- a pragmatic outlook on our choices. I care about truth and goodness to an extent, but I care about truth and goodness uh, only to the extent that I'm able to succeed in getting what I think I need. So when a perceived wrong is going on, when there's a situation of... of Uh, not truth and goodness, and I need to handle it, I will do what it takes to handle it. I will look, talk, seem on the outside, however I need to, in order to accomplish my good purposes. This is the mindset behind our moments of hypocrisy. And it's so easy to do in certain circumstances because the circumstances seem so significant. It's easy to feel as if it's justified. My friends, would you agree we live in tumultuous times? Times in which the stakes seem very high on a number of fronts. We need to understand it's exactly that set of conditions that has always inspired pragmatism. The ends justify the means when the stakes are this high. And this morning we have received a reminder that the Lord we are commanded to imitate entrusted himself to one who judges justly. This is what he did when he was suffering in a high stakes, an unjust situation. In our own moment, as the wickedness of the world seems to press in on us in a number of spheres, I would suggest to you that this is a temptation we're facing today and on Two fronts, both the offensive front of these, of these times we're living in and the defensive front. Offensively, we're tempted to fight the battles of our day with a by-any-means-necessary mentality. So mockery is acceptable. Deception is acceptable. Hatred is acceptable, depending on how bad is the person that it's aimed at. How significant is the issue that it deals with? We're tempted in that way. When our example walked through these injustices before us with no deceit found in his mouth, able to say with an utterly clean conscience, I have have put everything transparently. There is nothing hidden. Why did he do that? He did that because he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. We face those temptations offensively, but defensively, it's the same thing. We're tempted to protect ourselves by any means necessary. 
And often the way that that presents itself to us is we begin to imagine loopholes to faithfulness that might allow us to avoid the consequences of the times, that might allow us to protect ourselves or our family. There, you, you can see how the stakes are high on a defensive front as well. Pragmatism would come into those moments and tell us that there are ways to avoid paying the costs that come from following Christ. But Christ is the one who told us that anyone who would follow him had better count the cost. There is going to be cost. Paul warned Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's going to cost. And when the costs come due, how will we be found? What will be our driving priority? Self-preservation? Or the flowery version of it, preservation for our family, for those that we are providing for, who count on us? Or will the priority be that I live in such a way that I entrust myself to the one who sees and the one who judges justly? Let's remember the words as we close here this morning, the words of 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 14. Peter said this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is the way that we are called to think and to live the time of our exile. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we together bless the name of your Son, of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning. We bless him for his work on our behalf and for the example that he has left us, that we might walk after him. God, we ask you to help us to remember the example that he has set. Help us to remember the brevity, not just of our entire lives, but of the conflicts and turmoils in the world. And we pray that by your grace, we would walk faithfully through the days that you have given to us. The specific times and days that you've chosen to place us here. Help us to trust you in that placement and to walk faithfully through them. And God, make it our driving concern as your people that in every circumstance, your name would be honored among us by our good conduct. We pray for your help, Father. Make us bold and brave, and yet at the same time and in the same way, peaceful and content as we follow Christ's example by entrusting ourselves to you. We do it because we know that you will judge, and you will judge with perfect justice. Lord, lead us in all things to entrust ourselves to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.